0: Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. We do not have Cynthia this week. Hopefully, we'll have her back next week. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Every week, we bring in these amazing guests that are entrepreneurs, that have a little extra on their resume, and that is service to our country. And This week, I am absolutely thrilled because this guest has probably the most eclectic Background we've ever had on this program, uh, and it's it's just exciting because of everything he's done. I'm going to stop and just introduce him, Ola Shani Bello. Welcome to the program, sir.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me.
0: Glad uh, to be here, dude. You're I've been doing a lot of research on your background, and it's just fascinating. You started, you grew up in Nigeria, correct? And then you came to the states at what age?
1: I was actually 10 when I came
0: with my mother. Oh, my God. And what was that experience like for you going from Nigeria to the States?
1: Uh, yeah, without mincing words, I mean, that was one of the, that was a very challenging culture shock, right? Um, not just, I mean, obviously there are 50 states, but we were in uh, Orangeburg, South Carolina. Oh, wow. And so that was even more pronounced uh, change from Lagos, Nigeria to Orangeburg. Uh, it was challenging and I, I found it hard to sort of assimilate or find my identity, if you will. Uh, But over time, I think that, you know, we we passed that test, but a very challenging transition for sure. And it was actually the catalyst to my mother putting me in martial arts. Um, That signals how challenging the time I was having. um, Self-defense became an issue for me and, and martial arts started to be that balancing force in my life and also empowering in many ways
0: you were a junior Olympian, like a medal winning, just, just bananas. Talk about that that pathway. Because like I said, th- you know, this is why guests will start to get that we're going to take a long time to get to your business because this is where you're going to be spending a lot of time on your, but like, it's so fascinating. How did you get to the junior Olympics?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I what I recall is my very first tournament, um, my mother came to watch. And it was the only one she came to. Yeah. And I had such a hard time turning that switch on that, you know what, this is competition. I was still in that place of defending myself um, in that place of feeling like everything was existential mm. versus understanding I had control. Mm. Like I had the ability to turn switches on, pull levers, how I wanted. And I actually cried my very first tournament. My mother said to me, she said, if you, if you cry, I will pull you out of martial arts. Mm. And she's like, I didn't put you in this to see you cry. <laughs> and, you know, being raised by a single mom, there are these moments that will will, will, will always uh, resonate with you. And that was one of them. She never came another one of my tournaments. She was very supportive. Obviously, it cost money to be to be heavily involved. And I just started leaning in, is the best way I could say. I went through the state competitions, I was getting better every year. Yeah. And then with that ecosystem, that family, that the martial art family, it, it was it's you, you're you're doing sleepovers, you're training for the next tournament, the next tournament. The way junior Olympics came up was once you've won enough state tournaments, you qualify for that. And my very first junior Olympics, um, I won the silver. And, and, and while that should have been a very celebratory experience, it was actually very painful because I was so close, Dang. so close. And 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 my sensei said to me, just work harder, come back next year. I then started hitting the gym and visualizing all the folks who defeated me. And when I say all the folks, I mean, it was one person, but really at the end of the day, I felt like the whole team, the supporting cast that he had in his corner. And when I was in the gym, when I was doing my meditation, I would visualize and visualize like I'm going to get back here again, and the next year I did come back and won the gold, and that was, I think, a moment where I started to realize, if I really focus on something, anything's possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's such a crazy story, and then you go through, you know, all the this adversity, and then what's the mindset as you're getting older and you're thinking about what you're going to do beyond school? you think about, I'm going to go in the military. <laughs> what, what, uh, what was going through your head when you made that decision? Did you include your your mother in this decision as well?
1: <laughs> I did. I did. So oh. Taekwondo, uh, I, I got invited to try it for the U.S. Olympic team. Mm. And, uh, but I was not a U.S. citizen at the time. So I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. It, it's a very long process. Yeah. So the invitation came before I was a citizen, and, and, and that would have probably been a different fork in the road for me. Um, to compete um, professionally. Um, The military came about, you know, I love the outdoors. I love adventure. I also love the sense of discipline that was sort of marketed through the military. You know, this refinement that you would go through, this process of refinement and polishing. I said, you know what? I could probably benefit from that. But the very first time the military came on my radar, I was just about 18.
0: Mm.
1: And my mother was like, look. You're my only son. You I were immigrants in this country. You, you, you've got into college. Why not go to college? And you know, she had a conversation with the recruiter. I had a conversation with the recruiter, and it just was one of those things where it's like, you know, what? Maybe she has a point. And and there were other options at the point, but I really felt this need to serve, and I was very grateful for for being in America for the things that I knew I was fortunate to have access to, and it seems just run of the mill, you know, to have safety or the ability to go to school or, you know, when it gets dark, it doesn't become existential for you. You know, there are all these things that we take for granted that I really appreciate. And in my youth, it was still so pronounced to me because I knew the differences. Right. And so I wanted to give back. But that was not the juncture. Went to school, you know, went to college and had other interests there. There was actually an RTC program, which I also engaged and, um, but I was going to have to forego studying abroad and I was really adventurous at the moment. So I studied abroad, uh, in Australia for a year. Oh, wow. So because I did that, I could not do ROTC. So I, you know, I, I thought I love traveling. And so that ended up being the decision point. The military came about after college and after law school. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 three years out of law school, I've, I, I, I mean, three years in law school, I passed the New York bar. And being a JAG officer was introduced to me. this concept of being a lawyer for the army. You can practice law anywhere in the world. You can be as high speed as infantry. You can get the same level of training and essentially advise commanders on all sorts of decision points. Right. Not just in the courtroom where that's a traditional concept that most people have of sure. JAGs over lawyers. Yep. But the military JAG literally is a force multiplier when it comes to making decisions in austere locations and just even the operational and mechanical engine of of the army. And so that opportunity came about um, you know through some mentors who said I think you'd be good for this you've always expressed a passion for service and now you're bridging your career path with yeah. your desire to serve.
0: That's fascinating. And so what was what was surprising once you got into I mean, first of all, you had to go through boot camp, though, right? Like everybody yeah. still has to go through that. What was that yeah. for you? What was that experience for you?
1: now <laughs> um, it was it was the best of times and worst of times. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, you make some of the best friends because yeah. misery loves company. Yep. <laughs> and so, down to the basics of has your bed been made properly? The cadre comes in to make sure it's folded over the exact precise way you were informed it should be every morning and I actually had to hack the system because it was such a burden for me that I started using my sleeping bag I would sleep on top of the bed so I wouldn't have to make it every morning so just sleep on so morning time comes I roll my sleeping bag up and the bed is still made the same way (laughs) I had to find many ways to hack the system but everything from land navigation to to night shots and and like qualifying the range at night and running and running and more running, it, it breaks you down. And I, I joked that there was a moment I really forgot I was an attorney. I forgot I was a lawyer.
0: Because
1: mm. that's not what you're covering during those months. Sure. And, and for for Benny, Georgia, you're just not going over that. When you are done with that chapter, right. then you go to Charlottesville, Virginia, the JAG school, for the legal refinement. But Before you get there, it's all military training.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you get in an and you're in the JAG. What what did, what surprised you about when you got in? Like what what were you what did, when you got in? Are there things that you weren't expecting that you experienced?
1: Sure. From the moment you get in, and you, you you keep getting a lot of communications, but then there's this moment where you have to go and buy your uniform, Or you go to the closest military base. You have these orders printed out to give you access to the base, and you don't know what you don't know. It's a, it's a really calm common saying in the army. Yeah, and I'm walking in the PX, I'm going to buy uniforms. I'm literally just reading off the list and asking, I need to have this, I need to have this. And you don't even know what you're getting. You just put these things in the cart, piling up. Um, And I think the transformation starts to happen internally where you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to be serving my country. I'm going to be in uniform for X number of years. But the things I didn't expect were, if you're early, you're late. Right, and what that meant was when we had PT in the morning. I remember my first PT session. Communication had been sent out. Be there at six thirty. I got there like six twenty nine. Everybody was there at like six a.m. And wow. th- that was the start. And I had to do push-ups because I was late. Mm-hmm. That was the start where you start. Okay, the switch is on. I, th- this is a very different ball game. Even being as refined as learning how to salute, the crispness of your salute. These are things over time you start to learn. I want to be the most polished version of myself. I'm wearing the uniform. I'm wearing that rank. But it's not about me. It's about everybody else who's come before me who's wearing that and the sacrifices they've made for their country. So I need to be on that level. I need to be polished. You know, like there's that awakening in your mind. I'm not just... A single individual in uniform. It's all the other folks who come before me. And I need to make sure that I represent with honor and and and, and
0: patriotism. That's amazing. You that wasn't your first stop. You did some other things and you ended up in Afghanistan. You ended up and you got the bronze star. That's yeah. talk a little bit about that if you if if you feel comfortable. Like what led up to that? Scenario that ended up where you end up getting the Bronze Star?
1: Sure. You know, it, Afghanistan, every moment in Afghanistan is is, is unexpected. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas with the 1st Cavalry Division. And, you know, with the, the deployments coming up, and you something, I looked forward to the deployment, which again, you don't know what you don't know. You don't right. know exactly what it's going to be like. And when I got on the ground, my position—I I, had—I was slated for other duties, but because of just some manpower issues, I was assigned to be the chief of detention operations, and I did not know what that meant hmm. at all. I can—I can tell you that I had a concept, but I didn't know what it was going to entail. Um, I was in RC East, Regional Command East, um, and I was overseeing seven provinces: Batika, um, Host, Province, a whole. A lot of traveling was required, yeah. but what was unique about this was the mandate was we're training the Afghans to take control. So your job is to ensure the integrity of operations, to ensure they're trained properly hmm. so that they can then do the exact same thing we're doing now on the ground. So there was this training aspect, but then it evolved to this other aspect of, well, if we're going to maintain the integrity of deten- detainee operations, we need to have a system, a robust system, how we decide who we capture, when we capture, do we release them? What are the standards for release? And if we do that, what do we do with them? Exactly where do we drop them off? Like mm-hmm. Down to the the left turn, the right turn, Like there were so many aspects that, against my earlier point, I didn't know what it actually entailed. Sure. Even just to get air assets to fly to a particular location, you're not top priority per se. You have to make sure that you can plan your mission within the left and right limits of, of, of the assets that are, that are needed.
0: Hmm.
1: We had a team which also included a doctor, uh, a medical representative, um, we had a police officer representative. And I'm, I'm using the, the the civilian terms for this so, so it doesn't get too militarized. And we also had some a coalition force or NATO ally representative, someone from another country beyond hmm. the U.S. So again, there's a lot of transparency here. And then we have random visits from the Red Cross. The Red Cross is a neutral player that would just show up and say, we need to inspect one of your facilities. And we need to do it right. in two days. And we have to get there and ensure that, Things were running smoothly, right? Um, again, we're all about being transparent and sharing information, but it was a very tough burden because the Red Cross would also talk to the Taliban, mm. right? So, so you're 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 really trying to balance transparency the integrity of your operations with yeah. the security as well. Yeah. Um. And the, to your to your main question about the Bronze starts, it's always it's always challenging when you think of, especially with everything that's just happened recently, um, the lives lost and all the amazing people I serve with and the people who went on multiple missions years and years after we left. Right. And so I I guess my answer, my response to it is I'm I have a lot of gratitude for that. And there's there are always people who are deserving of those type type of military accolades. And I I respect just for the sacrifice and everything. I don't want to blow up or it as, you know, amplified the work I did because so many people were doing great things as well. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm honored to have been part of that chapter and I was definitely hoping for something better than what we just experienced last three
0: months. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: but, you know, it was, it's also one of the best chapters of my life serving my country, especially with the first Cavalry division. Um, and we did our best. We did the best we could. Yeah. And I always uh, note that we lost over 120 Soldiers during our time there, and, and, and we do these things called ramp ceremonies where we salute the bodies as, as they're being um, loaded um, back on uh, for the final flight home. And I think those are the memories I'm, I'm left with. Those people who made the ultimate sacrifice really deserve all the the accolades and the honors because who knows what they would have done? Who knows what companies they would have created? Right? How they would have changed the world? Yeah. And, and so I always want to use that moment to amplify their memories.
0: That's amazing. When you were thinking through what your life was going to be like after the army talk a little bit about your mindset. How did you know this was it? Like this was the time to transition out.
1: That's, that's a great question and a very challenging one. It is the question that many people ask themselves when they say, do I stay or should I go? Right. You've, for me, it was, I think I've done everything I can do here and, it seems short, but it was a lot squeezed into those five and a half years. Yeah. I was, my last assignment was in Germany and um, I'd finished up a couple of different investigations in Romania, Bulgaria. Um, and for me, I, you know, I, I'm always digesting news and current events. And I felt like there was so much more I could do because of what I'd learned in the army, because of who I'd become. I'd also watched the trend of military you know former military going into wall street mm. and being very impactful i actually had this forbes magazine that had the, um, a picture of a marine officer one male one female and, and had the question are these the future ceos and business leaders uh, of america and i remember keeping that forbes magazine everywhere i went it's sort of like a reminder that this could just be a chapter it doesn't have to be the book sure. and it, it, it was it was tough to make that decision because i was in germany and I was applying to jobs in the U.S. When you're out the country, civilians don't have a way of gauging your sincerity or they they have this concept that the military is going to pull you back. If you're not actually in the country or in the state where you're applying for a job, you're not the most competitive. (laughs) You have to lean in. And I actually flew back three times on my own dime to network, um, to do interviews, to let people know, hey, I'm serious. And I was targeting New York, Washington, D.C., Austin, Texas, places that had come up on my radar as great places to settle after the Army. And for me, it was, what don't I know and where can I be impactful? And the global finance ecosystem was an area where I had had no touch points ever. And people said, there's no way you can go into finance. There's absolutely no way you can do this because you're an English major, you became an officer, you went to law school. There's no way that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I I think it motivated me quite a bit to start reading, speaking to people who were in finance. And so I was able to make that transition to Morgan Stanley on the trading floor as a a VP, uh, working in the fixed income division, so specifically on foreign exchange. And again, it was one of those moments where it happens so quickly, and then everything sounds so foreign all over again. Just like <laughs> when I first started the army, it's like, yeah. oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to have to accelerate and learn quickly. Everything from using Investopedia to finding the other vets and Morgan Stanley, which mm. is a phenomenal ecosystem. Saying, hey, like, how do you? What's a pivot table? Like, how, how do I use this thing? Why? 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 You know, Excel and trying to navigate all of these systems yeah. that I had never used. And get, there were vets who would say, you know, I'll sit with you for an hour. Let's walk through this That's and awesome. tell you some of the things I've gone through. So that community was very helpful as well in transitioning. But I was looking for greater impact. Yeah. At the end of the day, I wanted to stretch myself. Yeah. I wanted something that was not the norm.
0: That's amazing. I bet it helped you too when you became an entrepreneur. You knew exactly how to build your financial model. <laughs> it's
1: always changing based off of what investors. The questions investors ask in sure. the market. I think COVID COVID requires a lot of editing of <laughs> financial models.
0: Yeah, but you know that to me, and I've talked to countless founders. Right, I as a as a new fund manager, I like to think of that as like the most important thing. I want to see your your financial model more than I want to see your pitch deck, right? We'll get into that. So you're at Morgan Stanley. You get this entrepreneurial bug. Talk a little bit about the idea behind Carpet because that is a phenomenal and very timely app.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, before I left the Army, my fiance now wife and I went to Tanzania. Uh, Being in Germany at the time, had this... Journeys, you know, want to give back. I'm going to go back to Africa. Like I'm Nigerian, but let's go back to a place where we can both vacation and give back. So we, you know, collected a lot of old clothes and shoes and bags, still in really good condition. And so we're going to go to Tanzania. And as part of our trip, we're going to visit this village called Weiju Village. And this was just to donate these goods and meet the kids in the village and just a feel-good vacation beyond just going to chill and relax. Sure. And while we were there, unfortunately, by the third day. Um, we were both bitten by a lot of mosquitoes. Unfortunately for her, one of the mosquitoes was carrying the chikungunya virus, oh, wow. which I had never heard of. I could not pronounce. And uh, she started feeling increasingly unwell from fainting spells to fevers, uh, just name it. And we started going from doctor to doctor, just panicking and if you ever realize or go back to a moment where you're in pain or you have a family member in pain or they have an urgent medical need, that you, you're literally just going to go wherever you can. You're just you're, you're panicking, especially when you're out the country. Sure. And so what ended up happening was we kept going from doctor to doctor three to be specific. And we weren't getting any clear answers beyond hydrate, you know, rest. And we reached a point where we knew that there was something else wrong. So we cut our trip short. We went to Germany. But I was still stationed right from the airport and went to a tropical doctor. Just Google one off the internet. This tropical doctor was, you know, we we're thinking we just come from a tropical region. They will be well-versed and sort of understand and ask the right questions. <laughs> this doctor, unfortunately exhibited quite a bit of bias, was very dismissive of what she was feeling. She had, she was suffering from extreme headaches at this point, migraines. Wow. And he dismissed it as perhaps she had sunburn on her head. We left the office, you know, exasperated with no answers, I gave her some painkillers, and I went to check on her a couple hours later, and she said that, I mean, I asked her how she was doing. She said, I feel like something's eating my brain. We rushed to the ER, and what was happening here, two spinal taps later, they discovered, in addition to having chicken chikungunya virus, she now had meningitis, So the meninges, the lining of the brain was swelling, Mm. pushing up against the cranium, hence the migraine she was was experiencing. And she ended up being in the hospital for three weeks. Wow! So we we caught it just in the nick of time. But beyond that chapter, this admission, we had two and a half years of follow on medical bills. So if you think of long COVID, when something so new has ravaged your body, you're going to suffer from joint pain, lethargicness. We had that for two and a half years, going to specialists. Mm. So now I'm out of the Army, in finance, in you know, there was seemingly good health care and we are just spending all the money we have to find a specialist that could help put her life back on the right track. Wow. So it, it left a really, it left an indelible footprint. Like it, this was not something it was that I could just forget about. Sure. And so while I was at Morgan Stanley and we're still going through this stuff, um, the idea of business school was planted in my mind by a mentor. And part of this business school process is really asking yourself, why? Like, what is your why? And through that analysis and through these applications, and that was a journey by itself, studying for the GMAT the GRE late nights, the ultimate question was, what am I going to do if I get in? What am I going here for? And it was, I want to be impactful. I want to bring some level of change. And I don't want to be a victim of trouble. What can we do to change this situation? Mm -hmm. Years later, there still weren't any solutions. And we launched Carpet Med August 2019 right when I started business school pre covid went to business school with a powerpoint deck and a vision writing about the story doing research of other pain points travelers had experienced and the growing issues of medical inequity again not even knowing covid was coming and we started building. Of course, COVID was like a Mike Tyson punch when it did finally happen. It's
0: <laughs> a great time. way to describe it, by the way.
1: <laughs> oh, no, really. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a drop gig. Um, and so that was the start of putting these thoughts together. And when I went to business school, I understood that I was going to have access to amazing classmates. I had four doctors in my MBA class. I, they were my first target because they're medical professionals. I had individuals who were also getting their master's in public health. So I started crowdsourcing, critiquing, getting information, getting feedback from people, how they thought this platform could survive, what it could look like, how it could be impactful. Yeah. And that was the start to Carpe Med.
0: That's amazing. You know, you you mentioned the, the what's your why, and there's a great book. Uh, a lot of founders probably have read it, The Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Great. I, I think that and establishing a culture early on in in your company are super, super important because it allows you to understand exactly what it is in a unified way, what, why you're even there in the first place so that any, you know, employee 20 to employee 100 understands exactly what you just articulated so well, why they're there and why it's important to grow this business and have impact while doing it. Super important. Yeah. Um, so you 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 went to Haas Business School Berkeley. What was that experience? Because you went through a program that I'm very curious about, uh, called Launch. You went through that program. What what did you like about that program? Because I think a lot of the founders that listen to our program are folks that want to be entrepreneurs that are come from the military community and may not know a lot about that program, which is less known than say like Y Combinator or other big name programs.
1: Sure. You know, the level of accountability you get when you're going through these types of accelerators is is, is one of the best ways to grow your company and really learn about what it's going to take. For, you know, launch, it was, here we are at Berkeley, I'm going to school full-time, and you apply to get into this program, and you're supposed to commit almost 25 hours a week. Mm. They tell you if you get in, can you commit 25 hours a week? You're thinking yourself. Wow. 25 hours a week. That's a lot. It, yeah. And and the reason it's front-loaded in such an aggressive manner is because those early stages where you're really trying to find that product market fit and learning, all you're doing is learning. You think you're going to start scaling and growing. All you're doing is learning. Mm. Finding out who's that new competitor. Finding out what do my customers really want. Not what I think they want. right? <laughs> Not what I want them to want. like What they really want. So you're tasked with X amount of customer interviews a week, which is very time-consuming. You're always, always engaging customers to find out what are their pain points? What could I be missing? And I think what's unique about Launch is it's open to the whole UC-wide system. So it's not a Berkeley-specific program. Starts from UCLA, from the, the whole UC system can apply. So there's a great cross-pollination there. And we started the program live because COVID had, had yet to be declared. And, you know, it, What's you have speakers come in, you have former entrepreneurs. It's this whole ecosystem coming together. People you're going to have to engage. And then you're also engaging folks with startups that may not be competing with yours, but they're facing similar problems. Hmm. From Whether whether it's marketing. You may not even have gotten to a marketing issue yet, but you start to see the roadmap. And I just think it's, you're crowdsourcing, you're learning, it's nonstop. The, the challenging thing about launch was being a full-time student and also not, and I think we're, they're trying to change this to Berkeley. You're not getting credit for that extra time, even though we actually lean into entrepreneurship and say, Hey, this is one of the benefits that come to the ecosystem. If you have to make a decision between study for an exam. Right. And, and and doing some, some deliverables because you'll get hit, got kicked out of the program. Right. (laughs) And you don't make it to the next stage. It, it leads to some late nights. But what's great about launch is you're leading up to these goals and beyond demo day, they'll have mini targets where who's advanced the most on the product development. And you have a little showcase. So it's showing you how people are evolving and then what resources they're using. And there's just so much you don't know as an entrepreneur that. And it can be a very isolating experience to be an entrepreneur that being in any ecosystem where other people are hustling and striving and evolving, it's just just beneficial.
0: Yeah. No, totally. I, I love that. And so what do you think you took from your time in the army that made you a better entrepreneur? Just
1: dogged persistence. like Never giving up. People will tell you no. And what I tell folks is... If I look back to the number of no's I've received in my life, I look at no's as bricks, bricks being thrown at you. And what are you gonna do with those bricks? You're gonna make staircases. Like I'm gonna build a foundation with those bricks. Those no's are just part of the process. Like a no can't stop me. And the number of times you're gasping for air while you're running in the military or you're <laughs> training, yeah. and you just, you're sucking and you're just trying to Pull one foot in front of the other, not giving up. And then you look back at that months later. You can laugh about it. You can smile. Like I thought, I was giving my all, but there was so much more left to give. Yeah. And entrepreneurship is painful. It is an exercise in dogged persistence. And I heard a saying a while ago that you have to have an unhealthy belief in your ability to succeed, to push through, and. You have to hack your own mind because our inclination is to ask people, what do you think of this? Do you like my idea? And if they say no, okay, <laughs> well, how, well, how does that impact you? It's always gonna impact you. Or you can just keep it to yourself as some people do and say, I'm not gonna share this idea, which is also not a great way, Right. but it is such a reflective process. And you. there've been many nights where I look in the mirror, I'm thinking, geez, <laughs> what else could I be doing right now? and then you reset and you realize if I'm building something that doesn't exist, I'm supposed to hear no's. It doesn't exist. So many people won't understand it. You're literally pioneering in a field where others have yet to, to come to grips with. Right. And so there are so many aspects of the military where I was able to get my deep, deep confidence there were so many things the Army put, had me do where I wasn't prepared to do them yet. And just the Army needs you to do this, you're going to do it. Whether that takes you 24 hours to make that <laughs> mind-body connection, understand what you're now going to have to do, you're just going to have to do it. Yeah. And if you think you're going to need five months to get ready or five days to get ready, both are true. And you just have to make it happen. And... That's what entrepreneurship feels like. You always feel like you're behind. You always feel like you're trying to catch up. Someone always drops something new to the plate or in the arena or something unexpected like COVID happens and you realize, okay, I was building based off of the picture of the world this way. How does this evolve with the new picture? That's literally the army. Things are always evolving. You train for one thing and when you get on the ground, things are completely different. You're like, okay, what, what, I just got to keep going. You know, yeah. you're not going to stop. And, and that's really, I think, an aspect of the military I'm very thankful for: is dogged persistence and never giving up.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, you you talked about how things evolve over time. How has the company evolved since its inception? I mean, you you had a very clear understanding of why you were doing this, right? Like this, the the connection to having really good medical resources that spoke your language in the country you might be in is really just a non-existent infrastructure. How has that changed for you over time?
1: Sure. And thank you for that question. That, that is one of the gating questions uh, that I've asked myself many nights. Um, one thing that's become very important, and I think people speak about this more, as medical equity. Mm. When we first started building Carpe Med, we weren't thinking... That we were addressing medical equity issues because we're, we're thinking these are just interoperability issues. These are just like navigation issues. When you start looking at it closely, the more challenges, the more hurdles you have to overcome to get to a qualified doctor. That is literally the definition of an equity issue. And for some people, they can circumvent it or bypass it because they have deep pockets or They just don't have those same needs or their company pays for it if they're on business travel and understanding the underdoctored, the undoctored are part of our population. Those with disabilities are part of our population. And so the narrative and when you're speaking to people, I think there was this perception that sounds like something rich people are going to want to buy because they're traveling Mm. and something happens cool. But You have backpacker 2.0, you have people who travel for all sorts of things to give back, right? I met a USAID worker who told me that um, she'd gone to septic shock in Uganda. And when that happened, luckily there were some locals who were there when she was about to pass out. And they took her to what they thought was a doctor's office. Hmm. The doctor's office was no longer there. Someone from a mosque came out and was able to actually help her, a doctor in the mosque, and was able to give her an IV drip through a syringe. Just a crazy concept Mm. before just to stabilize her before she got to proper care. You start hearing these stories of people who find themselves in the most harrowing situations, but the doctor's office is not even where I thought it was supposed to be. That's another issue. Like not just getting to a qualified doctor in developing parts of the world, are these places where they're supposed to be because things move rapidly? Right. And so the the, the more we start digging in and building, we realize that our second was much bigger than what we were saying. So that's one way we've evolved. And we heard from a partner that said, this app is really easy to use. I feel it's very simple. And I said, yes, it, it's supposed to be. That's exactly the point. People think that when you're innovating, it has to be even much more complex. And if you think of what you do in Google now, yes, you're just throwing a search term, right? Start a radio network, boom. That's not hard. But what it took to build Google was hard, right? But you, the user experience has to be easy. It has to be patient-centric. Like we want healthcare to not be another hurdle. There are too many things in life that are already complicated from you know, going to the DMV to To pick a thing, right, just pick a thing that's overly complicated and has to be. Healthcare should not be one of those things because it's literally a matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. And so what we realize is we are providing better navigation and ease and that that appeals to people with all sorts of needs. And so that's one way I think we've, we've evolved. And, you know, we were heavily focused on travel when we first launched, which, as you can imagine, Covid had a substantial impact on travel. So some investors said to us, well, I will never invest in travel. I don't want to invest in travel, anything dealing with travel. I don't want to hear that word travel, right? And we would start saying things like, well, if you think your last trip was your last trip then we're talking to the wrong person. Shifting the focus from, it's not just about travel, it's digital health. It happens to be while you're traveling is a market where people are heavily ignored and much more vulnerable because you don't have the... Access to your family and the resources, all the familiar infrastructure. It's even more important when you have to make that decision. And second opinion is a luxury. Yeah. So you need to get it right the first time. So I think the needs and the way things have been socialized and the emphasis on equity in the in the age of COVID is starting to take hold for some folks, understanding mm. that the these needs first of all, they won't be solved by just one startup. It's going to take an army of startups <laughs> to address the medical equity issues, and we're attacking it from a particular angle that I think is unique and very relevant to the modern day traveler.
0: Yeah. What have you learned over the t- over this time? Like, what have, what have you, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, what do you think uh, your first, you know, little thing of nugget of advice would be?
1: I know I've said this after almost every question you've asked. That's a great question. But this,
0: <laughs> this
1: one. So, as an entrepreneur, you have an idea of what it might take. You realize it's going to be hard, but the degree of difficulty is quite understated. <laughs> and everything from recruiting to finding that talent—you're not just pitching to investors; you're pitching to people younger than you, smarter than you, sharper. And one of the unique situations I had was I started building the startup before COVID. So I would go to the engineering school. I would go speak to data scientists. I would speak to people who spoke a language I did not understand, but I knew that they were the bridge towards moving this along. What would I tell myself at the onset? <laughs> Watch out for COVID? I don't know. I think I would say. <laughs>
0: um, That'd be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> the unexpected is as part of this, you think like, if you make a plan, just understand that there are going to be five or four more edits. We're probably in the 90th iteration of our pitch deck
0: <laughs> and only 90. Nice.
1: <laughs> only 90. Yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just think that part of entrepreneurship is understanding that you can't control everything.
0: Yeah. There is an
1: element of luck, but don't believe the hype that you just need luck. I truly believe the persistence and the ability to listen and learn will yield the answer, will yield the path. And so it's a nonstop process of education. So many of the things I learned in business school were great. But through applying, like when you're trying to build a business, you are applying everything in real time, marketing, sales, financial model, you know, all these things that you may not even be good at. You're all of those things all together. People say, I want to be creative. I want to be... Go launch a startup and you will do everything that you never thought you wanted to do, including some of the things you thought you wanted to do. And so it's all encompassing. It's not just one skill set. you do.
0: What have you fucked up so bad that you're like, man, this could have screwed everything up. <sighs> hmm. And I know as entrepreneurs it's hard because we screw up all the time. But there's always that pivot moment that, that very quintessential moment that you look back on and you're like, Boy, if we didn't get through that, and it could have been a bad hire, it could have been mm-hmm. customer you lost, key strategic partner you lost. But there's always that big moment that you're like, Man, whoo, we, we dodged a bullet with that one.
1: You no. Know, we were so diligent and intentional and very careful. My co-founder and I both have legal backgrounds, so we wanted to make sure we guarded against a lot of things. But what comes to mind with that question, the first thing came to mind was our interview. We've interviewed with YC once, our interview with YC. We didn't get it, but um, prepped for this, went through all the different sessions with other YC founders, and we should have known better, and this is what happened. One of the four or five people who is listening, Um, And you've got like ten minutes to battle away a million questions. Gets hung up on one point, on one detail, Mm. and it becomes this back and forth that you lose the whole concept of the movement of the innovation because someone is caught up on one aspect, and you're here trying to counter or trying to win that person over. Again, I'll go back to a boxing analogy. I think you got a bob and weave, you guys take your shots when you can get them and move out the way. We just kept trying this one This one individual and, and, and just kept asking and we, we, we answered it, but he just, and then we became defensive. And I think it is a natural instinct to be defensive about some things. When you think about the problem a million times a day and mm-hmm. someone who's thought about the problem maybe once in the last year and comes and is like, I'm gonna focus on this one angle and I'm gonna tell you that this is my challenge here. And how do you overcome this? And this 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 individual was basically saying, "Look, yes, I love what you're building, but how is the defense? How, how can you defend against someone else doing what you're doing? Hmm. Cool, got it. Expected that question, and then they sort of undermined the need for the solution. Hmm. And I think what we understood after the fact was everyone." experiences and comes to the table through their lens through their experience right if i talk about being an inner city kid if i talk about being an immigrant if i talk about martial arts if you've never experienced any of those things it's not going to resonate with you the same way and so i think understanding that your goal here is not to convince all investors you know you're going to answer the questions but if you find yourself trying so hard to convince a particular individual your energy can probably be used somewhere else right and so i think that's that's one that really came to mind and, and and you just learn from that and keep going but i can't have one conversation stop me or someone tells me well that's not possible maybe it's not possible for you but like i'm going to keep pushing because i've come from so much more so, so much more adversity there's so much more challenges so many more challenges i've faced rather yeah. where i i know i can overcome this
0: yeah I'm laughing because we had a similar experience when we did our interview for TechStars. Sam Yagan, who famously sold Match um or okay Cupid to Match for a boatload of money and then ended up being their CEO was in our last interview for TechStars. And we had a platform that was basically like a infrastructure play. And the interview was going really well and then Sam turns and he goes, "If I use your platform, how many engineers can I fire?" You want to talk about a question that like Wait a minute, what? <laughs> huh? And so that threw us, and we had no under, way of understanding how to even answer that question. And so when we left, I remember it was distinct, it was Cinco de Mayo in Chicago. I, I know that because we drank an ungodly amount of tequila because we thought we'd screwed everything up. We would, oh man, we just, we didn't get into tech stars. Uh, and, and so we we drank our sorrows in, in, uh, in tequila. But uh, yeah, I mean, I hear you, man. It's, it's so hard because you can plan for every contingency and then you get this left field thing that comes in that sees it from one dimension. Meanwhile, you've studied it from multiple dimensions. So it's, yeah, it's a challenge. Where, where, where do you see this thing going in the next five to 10 years? Where do you hope it becomes?
1: So we start out looking at travel because that's the first area where the need was experienced personally. But we understand largely that, so we're launched in three pilot markets, Costa Rica, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. Each market is uniquely different. Each market has infrastructure challenges. As we get the best of that market, as we get the efficiencies going up and local citizens, travelers can now say, this is the best way to navigate and get access to quality care. We're actually providing a service in our minds to the local government by underscoring where the blockers are and avoiding those, so that people can find the best navigation rails to get to quality care. If you think of internet, right? You know, you have Google Fiber now, right? We already had internet, but like internet's a utility, maybe healthcare's a utility. It just depends how you think about it. But as we go from country to country. We're getting the best practices,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the best providers, and all the efficiencies are mapped in our system. Long term, I see this being a really strong public-private partnership play as well. Not just for the segment of travelers and coming to your country. It's, we've literally taken your infrastructure and streamlined it. So how do we amplify this? Because we're learning for each new market. Mm-hmm. And so while it seems like, oh, you're just scaling from country to country, no, but we're also learning and providing a service. And so if you're going to modernize or operationalize things, I believe that we are a serious value add to government. So I could see this being beyond just this, you know, this B2B play there and B2B, B2C play as being a strong partner for governments. When they say, okay, what are the challenges in our healthcare system? I mean, we're having that conversation here in the US, right? Yeah. Interoperability of healthcare. We're doing that domestically. What about interoperability of healthcare beyond right. our borders? We are pioneering in this and it's challenging because of how uniquely different every country is. But over time, what do we have? A lot of good data. And I think that, there, that there's a lot that can be done with that in
0: mm. an impactful way. Yeah. It's amazing. Where can people find you online?
1: LinkedIn is just primarily my 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 uh, social media source. I'm on Facebook. Uh, uh, the companies, the company pages on IG and every other social media platform. There's so many now. The company you can find CarbonMed everywhere online. Um, but for me personally, to reach out to me, it's likely LinkedIn. Um, but I, I plan to get my Twitter and IG up as well. Just trying to focus on one thing, right, <laughs> and not be uh, spend my 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 other hours posting and things like that.
0: It's so hard, especially as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of, like you said, you're you're everything. You're the content manager, the sales, the BD, the partnerships, the investing, you know, and the thing that drives investors towards you, it's everything. So, hey, you know, it's been amazing getting to know you and I wish you all the luck. This has been really fun. Um, let us know how we can help. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. you know,
1: it's, it's really great to share these insights and stories with you. And, and thank you for sharing your, your experiences as well. It lets people know that like these challenges are you normal. Know, I, I listened to something Sarah Blakey said when she was like, she was everything. She was the before and after picture for Spanx, right? And that's, that's essentially what this has been. It's you, you're learning, you're doing everything, running all engines. And uh, thank you for providing a for, forum for entrepreneurs like myself
0: to, to speak. Yeah. It is one of the hardest, and you touched on it. It is really genuinely one of the hardest things. When I, uh, I used to run Patriot Bootcamp, and we did a, um, after my startup failed, we did a, 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 a session called Surviving Startup Failure. And I, it was a room full of you know, military veterans, military spouse, and it was a closed door. It was you know safe, safe space, share what you want to share. And I heard po- folks in that room, people that have seen action, I never saw action in the Navy, but people that have seen action say, boy, if my startup ever failed, I I can see myself hurting myself or it would be okay if I didn't wake up in the morning. So I don't think people realize the breadth and the depth of how impactful it is to run a startup. It is quite literally one of the hardest things you could do as a person. And to your point, as a CEO, it's one of the loneliest things because you can't... Go complain to your significant other. You can't complain to your friends. Your family's like, why don't you go get a day job? Like they just don't have any clue what you're doing, right? So there, it's this really lonely place. And so finding an outlet, to your point, to find others to connect with is is so important. So so important. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, sir, and uh, and we'll talk soon.
1: Absolutely, have a good one. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn